Hi, this is Tamika Kasten-Miller, and you are listening to Think, Flow, Grow. At the end of this and every episode, you will find a meditation, so stay tuned. Hello, everyone. This is Tamika Kasten-Miller with Think, Flow, Grow. I'm here in Houston, Texas, and I have recently stumbled across a video on Instagram or IGTV by a friend and fellow yoga teacher, um, Davina Davidson, on her channel at Yoga with Davina on IGTV. She talks about this conundrum of people who would like to call yoga only one thing and who put the confines of yoga in a particular lineage as one thing. Now, I do realize that not everyone listening uh, to this podcast is a yoga um, practitioner, and that is absolutely fine because this is just one example of problematic ways that we approach things. But in this particular, if you are a yogi, Essentially what she said or what people who, with whom she's had conversations recently have said um, have been about this is the way that you do yoga and, and that's it. It's interesting because as I mentioned in my own IGTV, by the way, if you want to follow me, I'm at uh, diva, diva underscore transcending. And on my my own IGTV, I I actually spoke to this about how recently I was in a training. And in that training, the trainer essentially said, okay, this is the way, this is the correct way to do this. And everything else is outside of that. Here's my thing. If you are a really thin, very flexible person, do you think that your yoga practice is going to look like a full figure woman's practice? Like just if we could just marinate on what the probability of those two practices looking exactly alike, what that is. And does that mean that then the thin woman's practice is more authentic or somehow more advanced or somehow more in alignment with the lineage of what have you than the full-figured person. So while you're marinating on that, I will mention other ways in which we've created single stories. So Chimamanda Adichie has this brilliant TED Talk that is called The Danger of a Single Story. And she talks about how European cultures or European influence cultures are represented in a variety of ways in which you will see um, heritages from all over, uh, from Scandinavian to um, to um, just all over, Scandinavian, Mediterranean, um, uh, you know, there, there are a variety of, of ways in which, if you, if you think about Europe, if I said, what does a European look like? Then you could think about anything from a person from Spain, a person from Greece, um, a person from um, 
Croatia. I mean, there are so many different uh, ways that we could go about looking about and thinking about Europe. So if I said, what is European culture? That would be a really hard answer to answer because you say, okay, well, which culture? Are we talking about Italian culture? Are we talking about British culture? Like, wh where, are we, where are we going with this? On the other hand, when we think about African culture and we say, okay, well, what is African culture? Then that, that answer might be a little easier. Why? Because media create a single story about what African is. And so what she was saying was that, for example, if, if uh, you know, you think about African culture or first of all, people think about it as African culture versus Nigerian culture or Ghanaian culture, or Senegalese culture or Egyptian culture. And so all of these, there's, first of all, no diversity in the culture. And FYI, I'm going beyond what she said, but I am continuing in the vein of what she said. But the problem is that there's kind of one identity that has been projected as what is, quote, African. And typically that has something to do with Bushmen, women who are topless, uh, people who are poor, impoverished, living in huts, walking without shoes, um, and um, are not living in cities, very rural. And this is, of course, not <laughs> true of all African cultures. There, First of all, there are many cultures. Secondly, there are cities in the continent of Africa. Um, Accra has one of the highest cost of living in the world um, with their high rises and, and beautiful uh, skyscraper buildings. And I mean, Kenya is more than just safaris, but of course this is what uh, people have done is have relegated a continent to one culture or one look because it makes it easier for people to not have to think about the colonial history and the imperialism that was forced upon Africa that then created problems within the continent. We have to agree that there is a really messed up history and a, and a, and a dismantling of cultures if we're going to actually speak to a variety of cultures and speak to a variety of problems even. We have to think about all of those things and let's face it, people don't like having the complicated, um, the, the complicated relationship with real history. <laughs> so she speaks to this, and I would suggest that this is actually a problem that is rampant in, in, in general. Um, this whole conversation was spurned from the, the video that I saw this morning but in reality, if we think about how people craft narratives in general, it is oftentimes in a simplistic way, which is very problematic. So I'll come back to yoga and how this presents its problems here. Let's say that you are a person who has learned a particular, one particular style of yoga. We'll call it Baptiste yoga since so many people practice Baptiste yoga. This is a form of power yoga. It's fast, it's hot, and, um, and it is very prominent, particularly on the West Coast. 
And, and, and hooray, like um, that was um, the second form of uh, style of, or lineage of yoga to which I was uh, introduced. The first was Hot Hatha. Actually, the first was Bikram. And then, then it was Baptiste Yoga. And, uh, and I will say that the 30-year-old or the 20-something-year-old version yogi uh, in me practiced a very different yoga than the 45-year-old version. When I was 28 years old and I started practicing yoga, if you're doing the math, this is, no, I guess it was earlier than that because I'm coming up on 20 years of practicing. My yoga practice at, at 26 was, is quite different than my yoga practice at 45. First of all, I was, was not very flexible then because I, I had not been practicing yoga. I'm not a former gymnast or ballerina or any of those things, but just a normal human and, um, or not normal, but someone who wasn't doing all those things. But I did have a sense of rhythm and body awareness because of, um, just the fact that I've I had always been a dancer. And, and so that gave me a sense of body awareness that oftentimes people don't have. So at, at that time, you know, it was, it was great to be able to practice something that was really challenging. Of course, I was very motivated um, by maintaining uh, a certain weight because I was younger and that's what I thought it was about. And this is the younger version of myself dealing with issues of shame around the size that I was at that time and utilizing a practice that felt, you know, really good in my body that challenged me. And I'm a very competitive person. So it spoke to that competitive nature. And that's, and that's what I did. Fast forward now as a person who has had many injuries, I've had a total hip replacement due to uh, doctors simply not looking at me and seeing me for who I was beyond a person who was a full figure person. Um, instead of, of, of seeing me, they would see weight. And so they, I talk about this in, the, um, in a previous episode, how instead of seeing me, they saw weight and therefore never actually would examine me to, to figure out what was going on with my hip, which was causing a lot of pain. And as a result, the only time that I find, by the time I finally got seen and, and heard and checked out, uh, it was, it was quite late and I, my hip had already degraded a lot. So the, the, the competitive nature in me could not be this, the, you know, the, yoga could not be about competition. It, it became about pain management. And when dealing with, when practicing yoga as pain management, that practice looks really different than practicing out of a competitive performance nature. Um, it became far more intuitive and far more um, necessary. Uh, and and this, this practice was what was keeping me walking, what was keeping me mobile. And there's n- not a practice that then is superior to another. It just fit my body better at that time. And Baptiste yoga was not that practice at all. Baptiste yoga, in fact, uh, I would go into 
uh, a Baptist uh, yoga class and would come out feeling worse. And it wasn't because Baptist yoga is a horrible form of yoga. It's just that my body had changed. And so it, it no longer felt good for my body. Now, herein lies the problem. If I were to tell that story to a Baptiste yoga practitioner who is a, perhaps a level four Baptiste yoga teacher and believes that Baptiste yoga is for um, every single person, and you, if you do it long enough, you'll feel good, that is a teacher who would break me eventually. That is someone who is so married to a style that they're no longer listening to the, to the actual student. And I have met those people. And those are people whose classes I will not go to because they're people, they, now mind you, I will go to any class and I will do the practice that suits my body and how it suits my body with no shame. But imagine if I'm new to a studio and I'm walking in and I have someone telling me, well, you know, it might hurt now, but you just keep on at it and everything that you're feeling now will feel different. That's not necessarily true. Uh, pain is data. Pain is an indicator of something that is not right or has not been done right or has is not right for your body or for, for your situation. And I cannot even believe that there are people who would um, push that or who would say, well, you know, if you adjust X, Y, and Z, then, then this will feel better for you. And, and, and that X, Y, and Z are things that pertain to the body, like weight or hydration or whatever. Th those, that's putting the practitioner in the role of there's something wrong with you, fix it, and then this practice will miraculously be better for you. So here's my thing as with, with anything and what I, I stated earlier, you know, we're all coming into any situation with all of the influences, baggage, all of our own stuff. And we're seeing the world through those eyes. And the folks who would like to keep, um, parameters or uh, keep keep anything in a box are for me that those are those are harmful ways of being so to explain to address this in a different way we could take the boxes that women have been put in so if we look at the boxes that women were put in let's go Everyone, if you've been listening for a while, you should know that I'm going to go to the Middle Ages. So let's go to the box that women in the Middle Ages were put in. Medieval women were either trading value. So I will give you some land. You give me that daughter or were um, the the bridges that connected families, wealthy families. Um, they were methods to, to climb up the social ladder. Women's, women essentially were uh, prize money. 
so this is this is what women are women are not thinkers they are not creators they are not allowed to be participants in a meaningful way in the society of the day and we think well yeah that's a medieval way of thinking okay let's fast forward to the renaissance when we can finally figure out how to do paper how to how to write how to publish um, we figure out how to correct eyesight through um, glasses. We have creators like Michelangelo. Um, we have creators like Da Vinci. Um, we have all of these people, um, but we do not have women who are able to be um, the creators of a destiny. Now, you could go to some of the women within the Sforza Medici um, families. You could, you could go there and say, okay, women had something going on there. But if you, if you go to other families, you will see that, for example, the families of, um, of Isabella and Ferdinand, those daughters were used to go forge relationships and forge and fortify kingdoms. And they were powerful women. And they were the daughters of a powerful woman and they were still used. If we look at an artist, for example, Artemisia Gentileschi, which is one of um, my favorite uh, humans from the, from the Baroque period, she was an incredible artist, but was essentially disregarded because she wasn't a man. So we still have women who are doing incredible things that are creators or purveyors of art or music or, or literature or what have you, and they're still being regarded in a certain kind of way. A phenomenal example of this is Sor Juana de la Cruz of Mexico, who is the most important writer in, from Mexico ever, the most highly regarded writer. And during the time in which she was writing groundbreaking materials, she essentially had to choose becoming a nun because she did not want to choose getting married. She wanted to choose herself. And in order to choose herself, she had to choose solitude. That is mind-blowing to me to think of someone who was such an incredible writer of, of uh, who essentially started the feminist movement in North America. And she's certainly one of the first feminist writers, if not the first. And even in her time, she's having to be this, this character who is sequestered in a, in a nunnery, in a convent, because she cannot do what she is doing from the outside because she has to be married or what, whatever. Um, if we look at, for example, Harriet Tubman, uh, who everyone knows Harriet, any person in the world, I'm sure knows who Harriet Tubman is. 
But many people only regard her as working the Underground Railroad, and very few know that she was actually also a, union, a spy for the Union. Because it, it, there, even with Harriet Tubman, there's still this story that's been created that puts her in a box of being an escaped slave, helping other slaves to their own freedom. So this figure of this, this mother to all of these people and this helper to, to freedom, which I am not dismissing. I am simply saying she was more than that. She was far more than that. And that story is not told in schools. It's too complicated. Then we have to deal with the union being right and the South being wrong. And then we have to deal with what was happening in the South versus what was happening in the North. We have to then talk about stories of oppression of black people that was not only happening in the South, but also happening in the North. We open up an entire can of worms when we start to talk about real stories. So we have all of these ways in which people are creating and promoting single stories of different people, be it a woman, be it a Latino. In fact, um, my daughter, who is going to be on the show on this, on this podcast, eventually um, had someone telling her that she was less Latina because she did not speak Spanish. And so there's that single story as well of if you are, if you are Latin, you speak Spanish. And if you are not, then you're not Latin enough. And, and that was a single story about Latinos in the United States. And that's a whole other episode that I will get into with her, but the, the, because I am not Latina. But the reality is that we're constantly putting people in a box. And as we continue to put people in a box, then we are creating oppression. It is imperializing people's lives. It's imperializing people's joy because we need for their lives to look a certain way. And so as we continue to do this, then we then become more damaged, more fragmented, more separate, more separated, a sense of isolation develops. There's lack of empathy, there's lack of compassion, and a lack of an understand seeking to understand the other person. And the crazy thing is that when people are saying, no, I'm no longer going to be in this oppressed state, in this imperialized state, I'm going to free myself and I'm going to free it by first coming into a deep and intimate relationship with my body. And then hopefully then that informs the way that I see the world. And so they walk into a yoga studio. So my question is, what will they be met with when they walk in and they meet you, a yoga teacher or a yoga studio owner or a yoga practitioner? And we take this person who is opening his or herself up to being, 
to coming into a new relationship with something that ends up creating, hopefully, a very intimate relationship with self. Hopefully, it ends up creating this opportunity to enlighten and to be informed and to inform and to be more empathetic, compassionate, loving, joy-filled. And if it is met, if that person and that opportunity is met, with something closed and elitist, sizest, ableist, then how have we participated in the demise of that or the destruction of that person's psyche? Then that person, let's say, goes on to social media to try to find other people who look like or feel like him or her and are met with images of people who are doing the most to look perfect and perfected or to promulgate a particular style or or what have you and how then does that participate in the creation of a single story or narrative around what yoga looks like It is so important that we have varying voices and people and perspectives in every aspect of what we do. Because as a person who was almost always the largest person in a a class, that's myself, I had already begun working on who I was and what I was about before I ever stepped foot into a yoga studio. I'm lucky because I had a mother who did not buy into the BS, a mother who was raising a very strong woman to know herself, love herself, and be herself. But let's face it, we don't all have that influence. We don't all have that mother. We don't all have someone feeding us on that level. And so when we go and we try to find relationship with others and subsequently relationship to self, how then do we participate in the destruction of that? I just think it's something that we all consider is how we are participating in, in the destruction of a person's psyche. And this is far more important, in in my opinion, for educators, yoga teachers, spiritual leaders, um, people who people entrust with their most intimate moments, their foibles, their their failures, their, their, their naivete. And so they come into a particular situation and are met with what? So for thinking about that, then perhaps we'll be better stewards of whatever we are doing, whether that be the classroom or uh, being a, in, in corporate America and actually having a company that loves its people back instead of seeing its people just as dollar signs as someone who's a spiritual leader and sees the quote flock as people who are growing with the leader instead of for the leader. Yeah, these are just things to consider. And and frankly, I don't have 
all of the answers, obviously. I'm, I'm a human, and I am, thankfully, I'm very happily learning every, every day, learning something every day. But what I will say is I think that if we just accept people where they are and invite them into a relationship and know that if what I'm offering doesn't work for you, it is not you. It just means that perhaps someone else can offer you something that is more meaningful for you or more accessible or more attractive to you. It is not about you and it is not about me. It is simply about being, being where growth can happen. And it cannot happen in oppression. And it certainly can't happen when I believe I'm the only one who's right in a, in a situation. FYI, we can apply this to just doing social media, just doing interactions in general. If we were a little bit more loving in the way that we actually encounter people who don't agree with what we're saying on Facebook and in Snapchat conversations with friends and we just allow people to have their ways of seeing the world. And yes, perhaps we discuss and we attempt to enlighten one another and we listen and we disagree and all of that. But if we were to simply say, hey, look, I love you, I hear you, and what I think is different from you, and that's okay, we don't have to argue about it, we, neither, I'm not trying to be right, I don't need to be right, and you don't need to be wrong for me to love you, um, then I think that we'll all be a little better off. So my ask of you going forward is, first of all, if you're not a yogi, please try. Please go to a studio that gives you something, whether that be meditation or, or an active movement practice or a slow moving practice. This is an opportunity to create a relationship, a, a healthier relationship with your body. And I don't mean just the physical body. I mean all of who we are, the physical body, the way that we, we run energy, the way that we think about ourselves, the way that we interpret the world through our bodies and by connecting. And then, of course, going to that inner divinity that is in us. It is such a beautiful way to peel back the layers of all of the things that people would say and to come into relationship with self. And if you are a yogi, I would hope that you would love others as much, if not more, than you love your lineage. Because realistically, if we, if a yoga studio is a place where people can come and be loved and can grow and can become more passionate, compassionate, passionate toward self and compassionate toward the world and, and self, then we're going to have to lead with being open, affirming, and accepting. Otherwise, I don't think that what we're doing is the actual yoga. Now it's time to prepare for meditation. 
Take a comfortable seat or lying down position. Feel free to pause this recording while you get comfortable and settled. Begin to notice your breath. Notice the onset of your inhalation entering through your nose. And the beginning of your exhalation. Notice a deeper breath. Feel for an expansion of your belly. And as you exhale, the belly deflates like a balloon. Take an inhale into the space right, right above your heart. And exhale, let it go out through your nostrils. Do that again, inhale right to the space above your heart, your heart center. Notice your chest expand. As you exhale, notice the fall of your shoulders and chest. Now inhale to the top of your belly. Notice your belly expand outward. And exhale, allow for your breath to escape through your nose. Inhale again to the top part of your belly. Exhale and allow your breath to escape through your mouth. Take another full inhale, this time to your low belly. Feel your pelvic floor press down. And exhale, pelvic floor moves back up as your breath releases through your nostrils. Take another full inhale, press the pelvic floor down. Exhale, pelvic floor rises again. Allow for your breath to release all the way out. This time, breathe toward the crown of your head. Exhale, allow for your exhale to escape through your nose. Draw breath into the crown of your head. Feel your inhale swirling around your head. Exhale through your mouth. And now inhale in all directions toward the crown of your head and your pelvic floor. And exhale, ha, ha. Do that again, fill up, belly expands, breath goes toward your crown. And exhale, ha. And continue filling all the way up with air, like a balloon. 
And as you exhale, allow for the balloon to fully deflate. Bring awareness to any thoughts and allow for them to float alongside you, still with you. And in your mind's eye, see yourself begin to walk. Begin to journey toward trees and over grass, crunching underneath your feet. Continue walking out into a field. Notice the sweet perfume of the brush all around you. Notice the smell of grass and the sound of it crunching and light under your feet and continue walking. Feel the beauty all around you. Notice a sense of warmth and care. Sense security as you walk along this path and an understanding of safety and love. Continue walking and get to the cave. Notice that the cave is dark, but you Feel a sense of security as you walk in. If any feelings come up right now, know that those feelings are okay and that you can set them aside for right now. Enter the cave with a sense of evenness, of equanimity, knowing that you are fine. As you walk into the cave, you notice the silence around you. You walk deeper into it and notice a small light. As you approach the light, you see a small child holding that light. The child is beautiful and staring back at you with full love. You look at the child with adoration and notice that the child is you. Recall a time in which you wanted to feel heard Recall a time in which you were speaking and wanted to feel heard. And that person who you wanted to hear didn't hear you. Bring that thought, that memory to the fore. And notice 
Notice that child react to it. Allow for the child to speak his or her truth to you right now. Allow for the child to speak to you. Allow for you to speak and be heard and listen. As you listen to the child's words, you tell the child, I hear you and I love you. You are heard and understood. And you and the child embrace. As you embrace, you become a part of one another. You pick up the light that the child had and turn around to make your way back outside of the cave. Take a moment here to reflect on the fact that you are heard and loved and that you don't need to convince anyone else of your truth. Recall in your mind's eye all of the people who listen to and love you. See them now. Allow for the images of those people to be on the walls of the cave and take your light to those walls. You are surrounded by people who love and listen to you. And you can love and listen to yourself. Fully emboldened with full truth and acceptance, begin walking out of the cave again. Use the light to light your path as you walk back along the field with soft and crunching grass under your feet. Walk back along the field, noticing now the flowers that created the perfumed smell earlier. Notice the variety of flowers and beauty that you can now see with your light. Continue walking and make your way back to yourself, seated or lying down filled with light. Allow for any thoughts to come back to you. Become aware that you have seen all of these occurrences in your mind's eye today. Notice your breath. Notice the clothes that are touching your skin and the connection between you and what is supporting you. Take a full breath in. Exhale, let everything go. Ah. 
And on your ready, open your eyes and step into the invitation of seeing things a little differently. It is always my goal to leave you better than I found you, and I hope that happened for you today. Namaste. You've been listening to Think, Flow, Grow. This is Tamika with Asha Yoga. I'd love to hear your feedback and would love to hear any topics that you'd like for me to address. Feel free to email me at tamika at ashayoga.com. Also, you can go to that website to find out upcoming workshops, retreats, and events in your area.